This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today has been described in some quarters as the golden girl of Scottish politics who can do no wrong, and in others, the Iron Lassie. She was born in the Highlands but spent much of her childhood in India, where her father provided healthcare. However, even from far away, she was tipped for a politics career in Scotland, with a teacher suggesting she was destined to debate in Parliament. She got involved with the SNP in her late teens and was elected the MSP for Sky, the Carver and Badenoch since 2016. A rising star, she was promoted even faster than her supporters anticipated when Finance Secretary Derek Mackay was suspended from the party on the day of the budget. She stepped in at the last minute and delivered it, becoming the first woman to deliver a budget in the Scottish Parliament. That performance clearly impressed and she was soon appointed as the new Finance Secretary. My guest today is Kate Forbes. <laughs> I think you might, you might have cringed slightly when I quoted the new statesman about you. Oh, the golden girl! <laughs> Yeah. It's like quite rom-worthy, isn't it? We can get to that. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Kate. As is always the case with coronavirus, we are not in the same room. You're joining me from... I'm joining you from just outside Inverness. So just outside from home. Now, clearly coronavirus dominates a lot of the news agenda right now, your daily job. But on this podcast, we'd like to begin by uh, looking back to your early life before you were in politics. So we are going to stick with the traditional format for now, but we will, of course, get on to coronavirus by the end of the podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, you spent a lot of your childhood in India. A question I often ask guests on this podcast is, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Yes, it was a very happy one, but it was a very unusual one. So I often say that I had multiple identity crises before the age of 15, because every few years our family would move. So starting in new schools, new towns, new countries. And that, I think, means that whilst it's happy, it's challenging because you don't have the same friends throughout your childhood. I'm not sure what my roots are, for example, but it certainly has shaped my outlook in the world and I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah, and you went between two very different places, the Highlands, where you were born, and India and other parts of Asia. Did it mean you had two very different experiences of education? I had more than just two because I went to a Gaelic medium primary school. I went to a local Indian school. I went to an international school and then I went to an English medium school. So I had a little bit of everything. And it's a, you know, a total clash of cultures, Indian school where there were 60 in the classroom, all sitting in rows where you'd still get a version of the belt if you failed a test, through to my Scottish primary school where it was all very flexible and learning in groups. And then the Gaelic medium where you know I was doing my, my schooling entirely in a different language. So there was a real clash there and somehow I came out the other end relatively unscathed. And you've spoken a bit in the past about how it meant you were quite aware of poverty in a way perhaps you wouldn't have been if, if you'd just been in, in Scotland. Was that from your experience of basically seeing how some children in India just didn't get to have an education? Absolutely. My, my views on poverty, as it were, are not ideological or theoretical. They are based on a lived experience, particularly in India, where, you know, the, the memory that stands out for me is age 10 doing PE outside in the playground, whilst kids that were several years younger than me doing manual labour, building part of the school. 
And that strikes you quite hard when you're a young Scottish kid that's come from the safety of the welfare estate where, yes, there's absolutely poverty in this country, but the poverty there is poverty with no safety net whatsoever. And walking past tarpaulin shacks to school every day where you knew that one day there were five children in that home and the next day there's four because one's passed away and there's no NHS to help. So that for me is what informs my view of poverty and some of the injustices and the inherent unfairnesses in the world. And that you joined the SNP when you were in your teens, when you were back in Scotland. So I wondered, what was the reason for that? Did you have a, you know, a dance of any other parties? What drew you to the Scottish Nationalist Party? So when I came back from India in my early teens, I, I did get involved. And I guess as a young teen, you don't necessarily have a well thought through profound set of reasons for doing what you do. But for me, I've always been fascinated in how you see yourself as part of the national community. And I'll come on to that when it comes to sort of studying at university. But I wanted to do something on a national level. I wanted to deliver change. And even at that young age, you know, for me, the SNP were the ones that were taking the problems seriously, that had a radical solution to the problems that I saw in Scotland. And I got stuck in. Early on, it was just delivering leaflets. But I remember distinctly 2007 when the SNP got into power coming from nowhere and and 2011 as well. And it was a case of, you know, the whole family standing around the radio listening to the news coming through. Yeah, and you've mentioned that perhaps partly because some of your childhood wasn't in Scotland, it's almost meant that you kind of own your Scottish heritage more, I saw you say in one interview. That was one aspect of it. And is it independence that has always driven you? Because if you look at the Highlands, there's a rich history of liberalism and you clearly have a fairly international perspective. So all of those things come together. You're right in saying that there's nothing like being in exile to make you more acutely aware of your roots. And I knew my roots were in the Highlands in an agricultural background where you know, Gaelic was spoken and there was an understanding of Highland heritage. But at the same time, I have grown up abroad. So I've got a very internationalist outlook on the world. I, my friends at school were very different to me, came from very different backgrounds. And I saw them as my friends before I saw them as people of a different nationality. So, you know, bringing those two things together, it's why I firmly reject any notion that my nationalism, and I say that in inverted commas, is exclusive or is anti-another. It's actually a, a celebration and a sense of confidence, of self-confidence and, and self-esteem. And I think in Scotland, and perhaps more acutely in the Highlands, there's been a huge issue with a lack of confidence, the sense that you'd only ever amount to something if you left, if you rejected your background. I don't believe that's the case. And the thing that attracts me to the SNP, or did attract me back then, was that sense of confidence and a sense of, you know, having a self-esteem that could stand on your own two feet. And um, Now, before we talk about you briefly leaving the Highlands and, and going to Cambridge, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of growing up. This is, you're a Christian, so was faith a big part of your upbringing? Is that something that's been with you from an early age? Yes, it has been from an early age. And 
my dad's work, so my dad left a relatively decent job aged 29 and went to India and worked with some of the poorest communities in India for no pay, no fame and nothing else. And, you know, I was acutely aware from an early age that he was doing it because he felt that he had to serve others because of his faith. So for me, all the decisions we made growing up in terms of moving, in terms of doing difficult things, in terms of leaving friends behind and making new ones, were because we had a sense of duty born of our faith to serve others. So that has been a very strong strand to my growing up and continues. Now, you went to study history at Cambridge and um, you've spoken about an old idea, but the idea that you'd have to leave the Highlands to go and make something. You said that you in part applied to Cambridge because somebody told you you'd never get in, um, which probably resonates with quite a lot of people, you know, the challenge. Was that a stranger? <laughs> Is it someone you still speak to? Have you told them that you got in? <laughs> in fact, it was one of my teachers I think one or two teachers, and I mean, don't, no disrespect to them, took my parents aside at parents' evening when I was about to apply and, and told them that I was wasting my time because I'd never get in, which was enough to fire me up and make me work harder for that interview. And I was determined to get in. I loved it. I absolutely loved it because it took me back to that international environment where there were students from all over the world where it was okay not to fit in. You know, my growing up has been moving, being different from other people, not fitting in 100% in any environment. And Cambridge allowed allowed for that. So I loved it. By that point, you'd already... Um you're already an SNP supporter. And I just wondered, often, particularly when we have conservative politicians on whether print interviews or podcasts, they talk about, you know, the Oxford-Cambridge student politics movements. Was there much of a Cambridge SNP movement? Did that exist? Did you, did you get involved in student politics? I think I was the sole member of that particular society. <laughs> but, you know, my, my, my friends were very aware of my politics, as were my supervisors and professors, and they actually encouraged it. There was no sense in which they felt it was a threat to their own thinking or a threat to them. And, you know, there was a few jokes around election time that I would be the only SNP candidate in, in Cambridge, which clearly didn't happen. A lot of the, the subjects I chose, there's probably two areas. I studied history. There's two areas that I particularly focused on. One was sense of migration, people moving, people having to leave their environment. And what does that make them? Who do they become? But the second was... How do people see the national community? I looked particularly at Indonesia, India and Ireland, three relatively random examples. So I definitely pursued that line of thinking in my history. And most professors and supervisors knew why, because of my political views. Um, now, you went on to study at Edinburgh University and then you worked for your local MSP and also as an accountant. So I wondered, at what point did you decide that you wanted to have a career in politics? I mentioned in the introduction you were tipped from an early age by a teacher who thought you'd be a natural debater. But was it that sense of public duty or when did you begin to think I could go for this? That's right. I don't think it was necessarily a political career that drew me. It was that mixture of wanting to serve and then an opportunity arising. So I did have a history teacher in, he was an American, in an international school in the Indian Himalayas, who somehow thought that my, my future was best served in the Scottish Parliament. So you know, kind of unusual set of circumstances there. But 
throughout, you know, my, my view has always been that you do what you can, you knock on doors, if doors open, then you go through them. And when I left university, I wasn't sure what to do. I'd done history, I love people's stories, I love people. And I thought that the best thing to do was to go and work in politics for a year. And actually, that year, you could possibly argue, turned me off politics. Because working as a researcher, bringing my idealism into that role, thinking that I could change the world, and realising that I couldn't, and that, you know, politics was pretty flawed, turned me off politics, and I decided to go and do something else. And went off to train as an accountant because, again, it was something a bit different. I didn't want to use history in a teaching capacity or any other capacity, so I went off and trained as an accountant. But then when an opportunity arose, I realised that it's not good enough to just, you know, shrug your shoulders and be unhappy about the state of the world and unhappy about the state of politics. You've got no excuse to complain if you're not going to do something about it. So an opportunity arose. I knew there was an election coming up. Somebody was retiring. The guy I'd worked for was retiring. And the least I could do was give the selection process a shot. You gave it a shot and you almost doubled the SNP majority. <laughs> so um, a successful shot. And then obviously you're suddenly an MSP and quite quickly you're promoted. In 2018, you became the Minister for Public Finance, Deputy to the Finance Secretary. I was wondering, what did anything surprise you about the role? Yes, I didn't come at it with any expectations, but it's one of the hardest jobs to pick up because nobody gives you a guidebook. Nobody tells you what to do. You've got to learn how to manage the media, how to manage your caseload, how to manage staff, how to manage the legislative process. There's a few amusing incidents that, that stood out, like the first newspaper article on me by a national newspaper that hailed me as a, another young mother from the Highlands, which was news to my own mother, who didn't realise she was a granny and she still isn't a granny, all the way through to going campaigning for the first time with an older male politician. And it was assumed that I was his wife supporting his efforts to get re-elected. So it was at a real steep learning curve. And of course, you're learning in a fishbowl. You're learning in a way that any mistake you make, anything that you get wrong is viewed by everybody. So there's no two ways about it. It's really challenging. And I think particularly if you're young and you're a woman, it can be very disheartening because usually people's criticism is very personal. It's very creative. It hits you where they know it will hurt. And so it was very steep and it wasn't easy, but it's inspired me certainly to do as much as I can to work with other young women to fill them in on what some of the challenges are before they get to the point of standing so that they're better able to cope when the criticism inevitably comes. Obviously, there's media criticism. I think, you know, it can often be a different type of criticism than a male politician would get. But would you say there's also it can come from politicians as well or? There's legitimate scrutiny and scrutiny can sometimes be difficult as well when you think you're doing something for the right reasons, but it's being portrayed as the wrong reasons. And that's part of the job, you know, no complaints about legitimate scrutiny. You do still have to learn how to manage it, but it's just par for the course. I think the second area is whether it's at a community level or a national level, when somebody does not like your ideology, your party allegiance or anything else about you, 
It's not that they argue with your points of view, it's that they try and bring you down as well. And, you know, it's a far cry from the debates I was used to having before politics, where you could like the person, call them a friend, but fundamentally with every fibre of your being, disagree with their views and argue on the basis of the merit of their views and still like them afterwards. Now, when we're talking about your career, I think the point where... And again, this might say more about Westminster. But I think the point where you became more aware as a public uh, figure across the UK was when you delivered that budget. So just to remind listeners who perhaps weren't following at the time, on the eve of the Scottish budget in February, Derek Mackay resigned from his role after an approach over a Sun article detailing messages he'd allegedly sent to a 16-year-old boy. Now, that has been playing out of, of its own, but... From your perspective, what happens is the budget is due the next day and you are asked to step in with hours to go. What is it like getting that call? Terrifying. I just delivered a piece of legislation the night before and I was particularly chuffed because the opposition, Tories and Labour, were were lined up to vote down my legislation and I turned that defeat into a victory and got the legislation through. So I was in a really good mood on the Wednesday night. And I was speaking at a dinner, and I kept getting these missed calls. And eventually I excused myself midway through answering questions to take the call. And that set off a chain of events that ended up at 7am the next morning, getting another call saying, you're on for the budget. And so with very few hours to prep and cram on everything, because Yes, it's partly the detail. Yes, it's partly the tax rates. Yes, it's partly why we're investing in this particular area and not that area. But more than that, it's one of the biggest set pieces in the parliamentary calendar. So you can't deliver a flat performance. You have the press in the gallery. You have got the opposition in the chamber. And hey, everybody's looking for the slightest sign of weakness. You know, they're looking for any cracks in your confidence. So you know, with a few hours to prep, I had to go out. And I think probably expectations were low anyway, so it probably wasn't difficult to exceed them. But it certainly felt good to get to 4.20pm, which was the end of the budget statement and the questions, and know that at least I'd done it some justice. Well, the reviews, as you touch on, though you are being slightly modest, were very high and lots of people said you gave a very good performance. Did you get any um, family members, colleagues to give you a last minute pep talk before you step out there? (laughs) If anything, I turned my phone off because very kind people from across the political spectrum were texting me, good luck. And there's nothing like getting lots of good luck messages to make you terrified of how high the stakes are. And so I ended up turning that off and just thinking about the task at hand. So it was essentially me and one advisor in a room with my briefings to get to that point. And you were then appointed as um, Mackay's replacement as finance secretary. Um, You recently turned 30. When you were thinking about what 2020 was going to bring, you now find yourself in a situation where you are in the role you're currently in and we're also in a global pandemic. So so are you quite surprised to be where you are now is what I wondered. Yes is the short answer, but the surprises keep coming because 
if delivering the budget was the first surprise and at the time seemed like a mammoth task because I didn't have to just deliver the statement. I had to actually negotiate a budget and get it through the parliament and it's a minority government. But the second surprise was actually being appointed to the role, which I, I hadn't anticipated. And then the third surprise, of course, is that within days of coming out of that budget process, which I thought you know, was something that I could just move beyond and get stuck into the, the detail of the job, moving into not just a pandemic, but a global economic crisis. And so there's not been many moments to take stock or take a breath and reflect on the last few weeks and months. But it has been a, a huge surprise. And as you say, I had a, had a, a birthday in lockdown with uh, candles and Zoom. Yeah, so not, not quite the dream, but there's much positive to find in it, taking the backdrop also into perspective. Now, to look at coronavirus, you mentioned then, clearly no one predicted the situation we're going to be in now. The fiscal effects and the financial decisions that have to be taken over the next few months are huge. But just on the response in Scotland, I wanted to just ask a few things, because clearly I think, particularly if you're listening from England, we're very focused on what Boris Johnson's government is doing. So I just wondered, firstly, have you found Rishi Sunak? Do you feel like you're having a constructive relationship when it comes to how it's all working? Because with the devolvement settlement, you don't have full control over uh, the fiscal package in Scotland, do you? I think the, the constructive relationship between the Scottish government and the UK government has been quite refreshing throughout this. I think both governments have put to one side the politics and some of the constitutional debates in order to focus on the task at hand. So from the beginning, you know, I've really appreciated the openness in Treasury and the willingness to discuss issues. And certainly the engagement has been far better than normal, both at a ministerial level, but also at an official level. And that helps us. It helps us give us a sense of announcements that are coming. It helps us know what the funding implications will be for Scotland. I mean, it doesn't work perfectly all the time. I think there are still areas where it could work better, particularly how quickly we get communications around what the Treasury is doing on funding, because in many respects, we've made announcements about funding for local government or for social care before the UK government does, and then consequentials come down the track. So it means it's not as joined up as it could be. But, you know, I think it is refreshing for everybody that cares about Scotland being able to govern well. And we have a situation this week where Scotland is easing its lockdown at a different pace to other parts of the United Kingdom. In fact, no parts are really moving in lockstep. England is doing some things that no devolved administration is doing. I was wondering, when it comes to that, lots of people are putting various reasons on this, but it does seem as though that our number is higher in Scotland. And also testing seems to be a bit slower than in England in terms of building up capacity. So do you think Scotland's just not in a, in a place where England might be in that place, just on a scientific ground? And that's part of the reason for it. Well, I think there's two answers to that question. The first is, of course, that the first case in Scotland was a few weeks after the first case in England. So it makes sense that we are at a slightly different point in the curve than the rest of the UK and England in particular. I don't think that is necessarily a significant political point of dispute. I just think it's it's a fact. And you could extend that to a regional basis. You know, 
you could say England-wide that different parts of England are at a slightly different stage in the curve. And as a Highland representative, I would say that the Highlands is at a slightly different part of the curve. The key is that you're able to respond to that. The key is that your health advice is the basis on which you make decisions, whether those are economic decisions or other decisions. So therefore, there needs to be flexibility. There needs to be flexibility when it comes to fiscal powers, when it comes to transitioning out of lockdown. And there needs to be the space to have that without people just making sort of political noise and constitutional wrangling about it. Yeah, there had been um, reports in the papers this week that some senior SNP politicians are drawing up a renewed case for Scottish independence um, while Britain is in lockdown. Now, I think it's worth pointing out, I don't think the suggestion is that the SNP government are doing this at the moment. But I just wanted to check, do you think that is an appropriate thing to be doing right now? Is that something to be thinking about? I mean, I have no mental capacity right now to think about anything other than both the health and the economic crisis every waking moment is spent on that. And I think most of my colleagues are in a, a similar space. So I've not seen any evidence of people working up any cases for independence. You know, I haven't lost my belief in independence just because we're in a pandemic. That has something that I, I believe in, but I'm not promoting it right now. I do firmly believe that devolved governments should have the freedom to take decisions that are in the best interests of the people that they serve. And I think in some cases, those powers should go further. I think particularly when it comes to fiscal powers, there are some very concerning areas where the fiscal flexibility isn't as it should be. It's not a constitutional issue. It's just very simply to enable me to do my job as well as possible to make decisions and to deliver and invest. There needs to be more done on the fiscal powers, powers and flexibilities. Treasury is open to having that conversation. It's not me promoting independence. It's just me trying to make the case to better serve the people that I'm tasked with serving. And just the final thing I want to mention on coronavirus, care homes is a huge issue, ultimately in every country dealing with coronavirus. In England, the government have come under a lot of flack for what's seen as a sluggish response on care homes. There are clearly also issues in Scotland. There's a particular issue in your constituency at the moment with Home Far Care Home. Do you think mistakes have been made by the Scottish government at all when it comes to safeguarding care homes? Because one of the things levied, and maybe you don't think it's the right time to have that kind of conversation, but just one of the things often levied at the Westminster government is this sense that actually a little bit of contrition wouldn't go amiss when they're talking about these things? I think contrition, honesty and frankness is much needed in our discussion. I think we need to accept that the virus is relatively new, that we have been working extremely hard but extremely quickly to respond to it. And with the information we have now, we may well have done things differently to begin with. And I've certainly appreciated Nicola Sturgeon's openness on that front. In my own constituency, with the situation unfolding in a very rural and remote area, it's heartbreaking. It's really distressing. Older people are dying. My mother works in a care home, so I'm acutely aware of the fear, the worry, the anxiety. And therefore, going back, I'm sure there are things that could have been done differently at different times. There's still a way to go. And once this is all over, I do think there needs to be a period of reflection 
that doesn't take away from the fact that we need to move quickly now to change things. I've done that on a business front. I accept that developing business support mechanisms quickly means that you will get it wrong and you will need to tweak it and you'll need to change it. And I think that also applies to the way that we have got PP out as quickly as possible. We're taking a far more direct intervention approach with private care homes, for example. So I think we have done what we could in good faith as quickly as possible, but inevitably there are questions to be asked. And I think that honesty will be key in answering them. And now just moving to the final part of the podcast, so just a handful, and then, and then you're then you're off the hook. But the first thing was, mentioned your faith earlier. I was just wondering, I mean, I've had quite a few guests on the podcast, Joanna Cherry being one of them. She doesn't describe herself as a practicing Catholic, but um, she was, she was spoken about some of their difficulties combining faith with a political career sometimes. And I just wondered whether you had felt that at all, because you've spoken previously about the role of faith in, in public life and you've spoken about the rights of the unborn. So how have you found, I suppose, being a Christian in politics? In the same way as combining any of my views or my characteristics with politics, it's not easy. And you've got to decide when to compromise and when something is so important to you that um, you take a stand on it. I think for me, the key is being open and honest with the electorate. Firstly, in my own constituency, but then nationally, not being scared of scrutiny, but ultimately believing that no protected characteristics should prevent you from standing for public office. And if we believe in equality and diversity, that should also extend to people of faith and religion. And if my gender shouldn't be held against me when it comes to my ability to serve or my willingness to represent people, then that should also extend to my faith. You know, neither should my faith be held against me. That's easy to say on a podcast, but it takes great effort to actually apply that on a daily basis. If I use smaller examples, you know, it's one thing to talk about having compassion on people. It's quite another to have compassion on, you, on them when they are criticising you robustly in the press. It's one thing to talk about the importance of truth and honesty. It's quite another when you're determining how you present a particular scenario in the public domain. Now, those are small examples, but those test you. And I think you've got to meet those tests in the small areas if you're going to meet them on the big areas. And for me, key in all of this is integrity. You may disagree with some of my views, but can you, you know, have confidence that I'm honest and truthful and have integrity. Your government is looking at new legislation at the moment, um, new hate speech bill, which has had lots of column inches dedicated to it, proponents and critics alike. But one of the concerns that has been raised is whether it is going to limit freedom of speech and that could affect certain faith groups um, when it comes to things that you could be limited to talk about, sexual orientation, transgender identity. Do you worry about any of those concerns in terms of the fact that you could potentially have a situation where you could be, I, I suppose, prosecuted for voicing biblical views? Well, I firmly believe in freedom of speech. I also believe in uh, kindness and also believe that, you know, we do need to have robust legislation when it comes to uh, protecting people. But it goes back to the point I made earlier. I firmly believe that people should 
be able to have robust debates while still knowing that there's the freedom to express their views and express their opinions, whilst at the same time having legislative protections. There are already legislative protections in place. And I think it's key for a government to, to get the balance right. And obviously, you know, the piece of legislation that you're referring to still has to run the whole process of Parliament. There will be very robust scrutiny of it. There will be opportunities for people to express their views. There will be scope for amendments to be made. Now, I mentioned in the introduction some of the praise that's been heaped on you, the golden girl of Scottish politics, the Iron Lassie. What do you think of um, the way you've been described, um, language like that? Do, do you appreciate it? Do you think it is um, you know, different than it would be for some of your colleagues? Um, are you glad people are being nice? I mean, I'm quite relaxed. To be honest, I'm more uncomfortable with the positive nature of those comments than I am with the gendered nature of them. I did really appreciate that sort of Iron Lassie comment because it wasn't just she's a nice person. It was she can actually get the job done. As long as people are making judgments on my ability and how I can do my job rather than what I look like or my appearance or my gender, then I'm content. Now, you're probably going to tell me to go away on this one, but because everyone's being so nice about you in the press, you are already being talked up as a potential future SNP leader. Is that something you would be open to? Not right now, clearly, we have Nicola Sturgeon, but perhaps in the future. It's certainly not right now, and I can say that unequivocally. I mean, I've barely had time to catch my breath in the last uh, few months. I want to do a good job the, the role that I've been given. I've said it before, I'll say it again, the closer I get to Nicola Sturgeon, the more I see of the job she has to do and the grief she gets, the less I want to do it because I think she is hugely admirable and I have great respect for her, all the more in seeing how competent she is with the grief and some of the vitriol and the abuse that she's subject to. I think she's done a a brilliant job during the course of, of this pandemic and it's not easy. So at the moment, it's not a particularly attractive proposition. Do you have any friends who are Tories? You're often seen as being a less tribal um, SNP politician. So. I thoroughly enjoy making friends with the most unlikely suspects and I thoroughly enjoy making it my miss it, mission to build cross-party relationships because debates only work with people that disagree with you. You want independence at some point. We're in a pandemic right now. Would you settle for something like full fiscal autonomy, you know, the Devo Max idea that potentially when people talk about what could be offered on independence? I do think that we need more fiscal autonomy. Ultimately, I want Scotland to stand on its own two feet. I want it to have close relationships with our nearest neighbours I want us to be part of a much wider family of nations, but I want us to be a nation in our own right. And I think it goes right to the heart of our, our confidence, as I said, our self-esteem and our willingness and our ability to stand on our own two feet. So, you know, I would like more powers, but ultimately I would like to see Scotland stand on its own two feet. Now, the final question is something we ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Just smile and you'll be fine. Rubbish advice. 
it was for an interview I was going to, somebody gave me a mock interview and they said, oh, you've got a lovely smile, you'll get through no problem, which is absolute rubbish. You're never fine if you don't prepare and you don't do the work. It's a good one. Thank you very much, Kate. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.